Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in campaigning and community organising. We work with non-profit and community-based organisations, trade unions, progressive businesses and social democratic parties across the globe. Dunn Street develops community engagement and organising strategies to win campaigns both big and small and we train engagement staff, volunteers and organisers in leadership and power building. And if you want to create change in your community, then hit us up at Dunstreet, uh, sorry, then hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. How did I get that wrong? I've read that over 200 times. Uh, today's episode is also brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. When you need the support with a legal issue, it can feel rather daunting. That's why for over 100 years, Morris Blackburn has been helping guide clients with their legal needs. They're here to help you when you need them the most, from workplace to medical injuries, class actions, occupational diseases, and wills and estates planning. As Australia's leading planner for law firm, they have the local knowledge and the national network with the experience that you can count on. To find out more, simply visit morrisblackburn.com.au. And finally, today's episode is brought to you by Swift Fox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust. Lists that are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive donations, events that will energize the community both online and offline, uh, and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. And to find out more, simply go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast that drops every Friday and dives into the progressive campaign issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And on today's episode, we're going to be talking to Ben Hart about climate communication uh, and the media and how uh, the environmental movement, more more specifically those engaged in climate change, uh, are struggling to communicate to their audiences the need to act and address uh, the issues that are, are affecting our, our planet. Uh, and Ben's going to talk about some of his experiences and the work that he does in this space. So looking forward to that conversation with Ben today. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. Um, and if you're done listening to the show, please leave us five stars on the Apple Podcast. Uh, and uh, don't forget to give us a review. Uh, and all for all the uh, latest updates, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And also just a reminder that... Uh, Socially Democratic is going to be at the um, Labor Fringe. The ALP National Conference is in Brisbane later this month and we're going to be doing two live shows uh, as part of the Fringe program, one on the Thursday afternoon and one on the Friday afternoon, one focusing on the trade union movement, uh, where we've been and where we're going, uh, and one focusing on uh, campaigning. Uh, electoral campaigning, uh, the, what we've uh, worked out that we're doing quite well and where we need to continue to grow and prove how we campaign into the future. So uh, we're doing that in front of an audience and we'd love for you to join us for those two uh, podcast recordings. And to do so, you need to uh, sign up uh, and get your ticket through the fringe. And I don't know the name of the link because I didn't write it in my show notes, but the links will be in the notes of today's uh, uh, episode. So please click on that link uh, and register uh, your ticket to come to the Fringe uh, in Brisbane uh, for the ALP National Conference. And the ALP National Conference runs from uh, Thursday the 17th of August to 
Saturday, the 19th of August. Actually, in addition to the two uh, socially democratic podcasts, I'm also running, as part of Dunn Street, I'm running a, um, a workshop on community organising and we're talking about a bit of a test case uh, that we are uh, a campaign that Dunn Street ran successfully over the last two years where we organised a community for change. So uh, please also come to that. That's at 10am on Saturday, the 19th of August. All right, let's get to today's episode. We're taping this one on a Wednesday morning on the lands of the Wurundjeri people uh, and joining me actually in the Dunn Street studios, this is a rarity, uh, as a bloke who's been working in environmental media and communication since 97, uh, which is probably a lifetime ago, uh, first as a journalist and then in various environmental roles uh, with the Brumby governments here in the, the great state of Victoria. Uh, and has more recently led uh, communications for the Australian Renewable Energy Agency and he's the founder of uh, Fireside Agency as he continues to work in the climate space with clients like Climate Work Centre, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and Oxfam Australia. Uh, and he's joining us on the podcast today to talk about climate environmentalism. Ben Hart, welcome to Socially Democratic. Thanks for having me. It's great to be where the magic happens. <laughs> Literally. Um, not the first time you and I have spoken, though. This is uh, a pre quo quo here. I've been on your podcast uh, quite a while ago now, I think. Yeah. I think Was you... it before or after COVID? Uh, I think it might have been um, during COVID. No, we couldn't have done it during COVID because we wouldn't have been sat, sat across from each other. I think it was before. Wow. Yeah. You were in the first season, one of our first people. Yeah. 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 So the podcast is um, Historycraft, about the art and science of storytelling. Um, yeah, one of our best episodes was the Stephen Donnelly <laughs> episode. Yeah. Oh, pages say that. <laughs> um, well, now the, uh, you're, in the, uh, you're in the other chair today, so I'm asking you the questions. Um, and obviously we're going to talk about environmentalism uh, from a calm standpoint and particularly about when we sort of start to talk about um, ways that we can overcome the challenges that the environmental movement has faced in convincing folks out there that climate change is real. Uh, story plays an important role in that, but we'll talk about that a bit later. Before we do that, I want to know about your story. How did you come to be interested in this line of uh, work? Yeah, so I, my background is in journalism and actually my first ever job was for a, an environmental standards newsletter out, straight out of uni. So that was kind of 90, God, long time ago, 90, yeah, 90, 97, first job out of uni. Um, and that was really at a time when, um, yeah, there was there was lots of stuff going on around climate, and um, you know, it's still called the greenhouse gas debate back then. And um, you know, I mean, in some ways, lots of things have changed, but in some ways, things have stayed depressingly the same. Mm. But um, yeah, after that, I, I um, for my sins, I, I started working for the Herald Sun, and that was where I did kind of my training, and that really has you know, putting aside the the um the shame of um <laughs> working for the home. working for Rupert Murdoch it's actually was a really good place to learn about storytelling and really concise storytelling as well like I always say to people like you know tabloid newspapers like in terms of boiling down a story into into its sort of essence in a in a way that's impactful it was hugely you know beneficial to me in my career I only lasted there for a couple of years before moving into work as a media advisor in the um in the the brax government at the time and um 
yeah, that, that was when I uh, worked for Cheryl Garbutt, who was the Environment Minister at the time. And back then, um, it, yeah, it, it was much more about trees. So there was a lot of policy change going on around ending logging in the Otways, you know, reducing, significantly reducing, you know, um, the number of timber mills in the, in, the, um, in the country as well. So really started to get interested in, um, you know, those kind of debates and seeing things firsthand, how those debates played out. And probably got coming from a quite a green um, background politically from my family, really getting a, um, a more exposure into the you know the, the the nuances of the climate debate and perhaps the way in which class and um, you know poverty and social structures intersect with the environment movement and environmental debates. You know, so seeing how you know. Um, those kind of logging decisions, which I think were the right things to do, still had significant impact on logging communities in in certain areas of the state as well, and perhaps the ways in which um, the environment movement uh, didn't think about things in an intersectional way in terms of how those things connect with each other. And, um, yeah, so uh, after that became the Chief of Staff to Gavin Jennings, who was the Environment and Climate Change um, minister at the time, so really getting into the policy, um, and re- really when climate stuff was really starting to kind of take hold in the government, and and um, you know there was there was a lot of uh, interesting things going on there as well. Sort of moving from that, you know, the 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 tree based kind of issues into into climate as well, um, you know, and so uh, following that. Um, yeah, have, have had a variety of roles but sort of most notably as the head of comms for the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. So really being, um, you know, right at the centre of those, the climate wars, you know, under, um, you know, a Abbott government as well that was trying to, you know, knock over Arena at the time as well. So being part of the government but also trying to defend the space mm-hmm. Um, there and you know coming pretty close to them knocking over arena a couple of times while I was there but um, uh, you know r- really sort of coming out of that with some um, uh, you know real conviction about the need to properly communicate uh, climate um, that yeah uh, the need to act on climate and do it in a way that connects with different audiences as well um, and so when I started fireside in 2018 really decided um, in a very intentional way to um, make a big part of it, you know, trying to help people operating in the climate space more effectively, um, you know, communicating communicate with the people they needed to reach and needed to shift as well. And so, yeah, we, as you mentioned, we've done work for Climate Work Centre, we've done work for uh, Arena and CEFC and Oxfam, um, really trying to... Uh, you know, help shift the needle for clients like that um, in a whole range of areas, but, you know, primarily how to, um, you know, speak to people about a climate that perhaps avoids some of the pitfalls that have occurred in the past about, you know, disconnection in the way that we communicate these kind of things. Yeah. In, uh, in that time that you just described, was there a moment or moments where you thought to yourself, this particular subject matter is where I want to invest my skills and resources in a long-term capacity. Like, you know, setting up your own business at Fireside, yeah. not an easy thing to do. Mm. comes with a lot of challenges, as we all know. 
um, us in the, uh, this world. Um, but to say, well, here's actually where I want to specialise in. When Was there yeah. moments in the past where you said, okay, I need to make a contribution here because this is super important? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I think, yeah, you've started your own business as well and there's um, when, you, when you're opening, when you're hanging your shingle out, you're sort of, you're thinking about, you know, what's your, what's your purpose here and one of the reasons why you do your own thing is to really have the the agency in control to really drill down on exactly the kind of work you want to do um and i've i've always chosen jobs that where that kind of sense of purpose has been um important but when you're doing it for someone else you're always at the whim of that organization and the politics and the personalities and that kind of thing so i think um you know, when, when you think about what is the way that I can best use my experience and talents to, you know, to really make a difference and that's important to me, this, the obvious point is, um, is, is this area because we're dealing with a um, potentially existential threat to the, to the planet. Um, and, um, you know, I've even toyed with the idea of, when we choose clients of having a having a climate test on on clients to say you know if what if you're not shifting the needle on this stuff then we won't work for you now that's probably when you're starting out it's maybe a little bit too restrictive like we do only work with progressive organizations that are making a difference but having that kind of that kind of lens maybe is not where what we're ready for yet mm-hmm. but i'd like to get to the point where um, it is the majority of stuff that we do because yeah it's it's when I, you know, when we all shuffle off, we want to know that we, that we um, didn't just kind of sell air conditioners and, you know, like, um, you know, just just kind of, um, yeah, treaded water. We actually did, we did shift things, and so, um, and I, I mean, also, I, I sort of, I feel like there is a lot of space to improve the way that we communicate about client about climate, which is. Um, what we're going to be talking about today as well. So, um, you know, just I just see all the time um, sort of fundamental mistakes being made about how people um, talk about this kind of stuff. Yeah. And I and I feel like with my background and mix of skills, then you know, I, I'm not going to be the person that that you know makes the whole difference, but can be a positive voice in. Um, you know, talking about more connecting communications and more storytelling-led communications around climate. Well, we've certainly seen over the, you know, this northern European summer, um, temperatures, you know, out of control in, in North America, all of these um, bushfires or wildfires, as they call them in the States, in Canada, mm. um, and um, just un, you know, intense heat in parts of Central Europe, Uh I think what was July the hottest July in the history of the in world the kind of, of the stat. World. Like, yeah. I don't know, is it like <laughs> yeah. not a great stat to not 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 an MVP stat you kind of want for the world, but <laughs> still. Um, so clearly, you know, we're seeing all of the, so much evidence, yeah, uh, pointing to um, the fact that our climate is changing. Mm. Um, yet it's. Uh, it's not leading the news bulletins every night and it's not, to use your term, not shifting the needle. Why? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, we had like a couple of days there in, in July where I think successive days were the hottest days ever. And you kind of step back from it and you, you think, God, this, this, should be all, this should be all that we're talking about. And yet we're not. 
And it's not because people aren't concerned. I mean, the stats show that there is a vast, um, you know, the biggest segment of the Australian population is the is the um, is the one that's most concerned at around thirty five percent. So, um, and if you put concern and alarm together, I think you get kind of closer to sixty two percent. So it's not that people aren't when they're asked aren't concerned about it. It's just that next step in terms of taking action and actually um, engaging with it as well. And you know, I mean, <laughs> as an aside, I just saw the other day. There's you know in Death Valley at the moment, it's kind of reaching temperatures of 55 degrees and there's actually this weird climate uh, apocalyptic tourism going on there where people are heading to death valley and getting photos in front of the selfies in front of the thermometer that says 55 degrees and you know so people have really weird emotional responses to this kind of stuff and there's all sorts of um thinking and really good research around why people do have do respond to this in ways other than what you'd expect when it's possibly the the demise of civilization kind of thing so um you know i i think there's you know there's there's obviously at a higher level there's you know that i think there's something about our own mortality where people you know um psychologists talk about mortality awareness and how we kind of avoid things that bring our own mortality right in our faces which is i guess very understandable as well um it's like me, I don't check my um, bank account when I get money out of the ATM. Yeah, <laughs> I'm the same, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to know about Yeah, <laughs> so there is that dynamic as well, but there's also a whole lot of different, um, you know, dynamics going on around identity and, you know, people have, there's a lot of people who, you know, it's not a big segment of the population in Australia, the kind of the, the denial, you know, segment is kind of, 11 or 12 percent so it's not huge it's actually the biggest outside of america which is interesting but um you know i think um i think partly the issue as well is you know that with with the with the climate movement and the people who are a lot of people who who are really with best intentions trying to shift things as well through facts and science i think there is a there has been over the years a a tendency to just assume that um a the inherent you know um unarguableness of the of the proposition will just will just do all the heavy lifting so you know the world's heating up you know if we don't do stuff we're all going to die that should be enough to just like give for the penny to drop for everyone and that's not just that's not how people work you know um and also just an assumption as well that things will get in terms of weather events and disasters it'll reach a tipping point that we'll get to the point where oh that thing will happen and then everyone will go oh that's the that's the point at which people go ah uh-huh and people thought that with the with the um the bushfires a couple of years ago people Mm. thought that was going to be a real turning point we saw it it was in our faces you know people couldn't leave the the homes because of the smoke in sydney and you know other places it was just so in your face and evident that surely people um, will, you know, en masse realise that this is something worth taking action on. And, yeah, we know that, A, a lot of people are actually really deeply invested in being avoidant about it and the politicisation of it as well means that, you know, you can have the evidence right in your face but if it doesn't conform your ideas about your, to your ideas about your own identity, then... Um, you're going to do everything you can to create a different reality which says that this, you know, this isn't the problem that people are saying it is. Yeah. 
Unpack that identity thing. That's interesting. Yeah. If it doesn't conform to your identity, what, is, what do you mean by that? Well, I'm talking about like, um, you know, uh, people strongly associate climate action with, you know, a certain kind of person. It's now associated with kind of a pro- progressive politics as well. So I actually think like, you know, Al Gore has a lot to answer for in terms of, you know, the... the um, um, you know, inconvenient truth kind of um, stuff that happened in the noughties, which in and of itself was obviously really powerful, you know, bit of communications, but it also really framed it as being a progressive cause. cause. And I think, you know, I reckon in the noughties you almost had like a you had a you had a fork in the road where, you know, I think even conservatives were starting to, um, you know, sort of come round to it, you know. Um, because there's no inherent reason why climate should be, you know, progressive or, yeah. you know, like Hitler was an environmentalist, you know, <laughs> like the, the, yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't, like it doesn't, it's it's not a just a, a, a given that it's 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 a left uh, it's a left cause. But I think now, if you're a conservative, it just goes totally against your identity. If you're a free marketeer, you know, a lot of people. Um, you know, see see climate action as being anti-capitalist when, again, you know, like that's not inherently true. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's there's a lot of interesting discussion going on at the moment about yeah, how do you fr- how do you reframe climate to um, appeal to different identities that maybe are not the usual suspects, and so how do you how do you appeal to you know faith based organisations and people, you know. Because you can you could you can very easily create messages that talk and people are trying this at the moment with some success to say, you know, um, things like God created this world, you know, I'm a God fearing person. This stuff that's going on is damaging that world, mm. you know. And equally with things like national security, you know, climate change has massive national security implications. Um, and uh, we but people don't talk about it that way, you know. So there's going to be huge movement of people in in and out of you know uh, across borders if this is as bad as we think it's going to be, mm. and if you're a patriot, you don't want that. Mm. So um, the ability to frame these kind of these messages for these different audiences, like you know, simple as being a parent, why don't we talk more about climate to the level of clean air? Like let's have more electric vehicles because. It's going to mean clearer air on our streets mm. and our kids are going to actually be breathing cleaner air, you know. I think a lot of people in the climate movement would see that as being really reductive but that actually is a powerful message if you care about the future of your kids kind of thing. So how are we thinking about those in different ways and not just through the, the prism of our own identity? So you're touching on a bit there about um, from a communication standpoint what's wo- what is not working. Can you dive into a bit deeper there? Where are they getting it wrong in terms of the? And I, we yeah. don't. I'm not framing this question as sort of shit on the environmental movement. No, Obviously not not doing that. But where, what what are the challenges they're facing in terms of trying to c- communicate to these yeah. audiences that you're talking about? Yeah, and so I think that's a, that's an important disclaimer. Like uh, you know, I've I've sort of have to be careful to not dishonour the huge amount of work that's gone on over the past couple of decades where there's been really good people who have been very, um, you know, with a lot of energy and and earnestness have been trying to, you know, do good work in this space and there's been a lot of good work that's done. But I, I still think there's, there is a problem with the, um, the climate 
with climate communications, progressive movement, movements, and it's not just climate. You can see it in other places like um, like the, the Voice as well, and not to go into that too much, but there's it's been described as the Enlightenment fallacy where, yeah, you, you think that, um, yeah, the, the inherent, um, you know, yeah, goodness of the cause will do the heavy lifting as well. And I, I think there is... You've seen that in the voice, and you're seeing that here as here as well. Like, you know, of course, of course, we need to act on climate. So people just need to get that. There's that kind of vibe to it. Um, I think there's an issue around um, the fact that many people in this space, um, you know, they they're very comfortable with complexity. Um, so they have conversations around complexity and you know they're happy to talk about UN sustainable development goals and you know all sorts of you know frameworks and you know donut economics and you know all this kind of stuff that might speak to people um who yeah are comfortable with this kind of complexity but doesn't um resonate with a whole lot of other other different audiences as well you know I think there's an issue with language so even words like global warming, you know, global warming is, you know, I think is, is, is recognised now as being um, A, misleading because we're talking about extreme weather events, hot and cold and storms and bushfires. So warming is not great. Climate change, cl- change is a very, you know, again, is a very neutral word. So obviously, you know, you've had climate crisis, climate emergency gives a bit more urgency to it as well. But I, I think they're at its, at the heart of it is a um, – I think the climate movement has an antipathy towards marketing and simple messaging, right? And so a lot of the tenets of marketing um, are seen as being distasteful in the movement, are seen, are seen as being reductive, are seen as being trickery. And meanwhile, you've got the other side who are employing all of these tools, you know, Big companies, oil and gas, you know, like the the you know the 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 captains of industry who are who are all playing on that field, and the climate movement hasn't even gotten to the starting gate kind of thing. So, I think there's a growing number of voices to say that climate movement has to get into the game on this stuff, you know, and actually start using those tools, using simplicity, using repetition using marketing to actually, um, you know, win hearts and minds here as well. Yeah. Do you remember the ad that was in the cinemas maybe a day – who knows when it was because the time has just become irrelevant to me. <laughs> maybe a decade ago. It was an ad in a cinema by one of the major uh, – like it was Santos or one of the major mining companies and it's a woman – uh, she's in her sort of you know late twenties, short hair. I think it's implied she might be a lesbian. Uh, she's in the high vis and she's working in the oil industry, and it's just her background story. And yeah. just the messaging was <laughs> like it's just it's personal narrative, it's story, yeah. and she's making you know she's got great progress in her job and she's moving up in the world. Yeah, and that's why this is we're doing good work in this industry. Yeah, and I watched it like in Nova in Carlton, you know. So everyone in there is all sort of like, and they're all just. Oh, tut tut tutting, and I went. Yeah. That's a fucking good ad. Yeah, yeah. And you see that 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 kind of so so they get it, but you know, um, where are those kind of personal stories on on our side? Mm. You know, and there's been yeah. It, it goes back to this. I think it goes back to this idea of of, of complexity and 
um, you know, we, you speak to people in the climate space and, and the, 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 the tendency is go, to go back to the science and to the facts and to the, you know, to the, to the head stuff mm. in this. And I'm not saying this is universal. Like, there's a, again, there's a lot of people doing really good work in this space, but um, you've got to really bring your A game to this stuff and you've got to, like, use every tool that you've got. And I, I, I don't see that happening at the moment. Yeah. He talks about language as well. And it, I, I've always felt like, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I think I'm a progressive, a lot of people are progressive. I'm on the left. And I know sometimes when I'm communicating with people who are from the climate or environmental space, there's a disconnect between me and that person. Yeah. And they're kind of talking either down at me or over my head or I feel like I'm in trouble yeah. when I'm having that conversation. Um, and I just witnessed during – was it a year ago during when they started to really elevate the, you know, the climate emergency mm. and trying to corner like Daniel Andrews to, will you admit that it's a climate emergency? Mm. And I'm just like going – whether he admits it or not, what difference is that going to make? And mm. why are you yelling at him? Mm. Like, he's on the left. Yeah. Like, he, surely he's a part of this broader coalition. Mm. Like, you should be working with the levers of power to create change. So what do you think is the theory of change broadly? I know that there's environmentalism is a big community and there's a lot of sort of subsets and stuff. Yeah. But what is the theory of change what is the theory of change that you're describing or the chip? What should what it think, be? What, th- what do you think theirs is right now? Because okay. it's obviously not working. Because I think once yeah. you've got a theory of change, then you can work out how you want to communicate that yeah. and who to and who your audience is. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's interesting thinking about what it has been and what it should be because having seen the environment movement, you know, and, you know, I, I, this, is, this is 20 years ago, but I think in some ways you know that things haven't changed that much the theory of change was when it came to you know native timber harvesting for an example is you just yeah you stick the thing your finger in the chest of the labor government that is you know inherently on side like inherently for all for all the Greens kind of um, trying to um, diminish Labor's environmental credentials over the years, you know, was Labor who, you know, who saved the Franklin, yeah. you know. It was, it was a Labor government in Victoria that, that ended timber harvesting, um, you know, west of the Hume. It is Labor that will end timber harvesting for the whole state next year kind of thing. Mm. But... Theory of change was, yeah, you just smash the government and smash the government until they fold and then you just move on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And I think that, you know, that ran out of steam, you know, um, in the last decade because yeah. I think Labor governments just got, just got sick of that. So I think if you can switch over the, 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 the proposition to, to climate now, I think there's a, there's a growing awareness amongst people campaigning especially in the climate space that the finger in the chest doesn't work anymore you know and you've got to actually um you've got to actually bring different parts of the public along with you and so um you know if you look at all the all the different sort of segments of the population you know from alarmed and concerned to um disengaged and sort of dismissive denial types at the end it's about you know how do you actually shift people down that um down that line towards being concerned um and 
there is, uh, you know, there is, has been some success in that, you know. But the idea that people will just naturally shift down that line as things get worse, that's just not true. We just know that for a fact. I mean, the, the, the research says that, you know, for every one degree of warming, there is a one degree increase on its own of people who are identify as being alarmed or concerned. Now, that's not going to get us to where we want to get to, <laughs> right? <fly>. Yeah. <laughs> so we need to actually be really actively targeting people and also moving outside of these walled gardens that we sit in mm. and actually be trying to shift people who are not our people as well because the right are doing that. You know, you can see that with the voice. The right are actually looking, grabbing people from all sorts of places, you know. But I've sat in meetings with progressives and I feel like I'm always the one that who's saying, you know, how do we reach those unreachable people? How do we get people, you know, um, and I'm gonna, probably going to offend people by saying this, like how do we get people in a pub in Narry Warren to give a fuck about this stuff, yeah. you know? Um, sorry, am I allowed to swear? Oh, okay. swear as much as you like, Ben. <laughs> um, how do we, how, if, you know, if you walk into the pub in Narry Warren and you start talking about sustainable, UN Sustainable Development Goals. Net zero targets. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> you know. And, I, and in one of the times that I was mounting this kind of, this argument, I had someone say to me, we, we shouldn't bother knocking on closed doors. That's not where our energy should be. And I'm like... Closed doors is all that we should be knocking on, mm. you know. So I don't know how we got to this point where we, where we don't want to be opening those doors and we're actually just really comfortable sitting in cross-legged in amongst our own people mm. and thinking that's going to change things at all because that's not going to change things. Let's take a quick break to talk about SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust. Lists that are up to date, absolutely. Phone banks. Uh, that can change minds, emails that drive donations and events that will energize the community online and offline and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. And to find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign. Okay, let's get back to the show. Well, yeah, I mean, you just answered my next question, which was who is the audience that is seeking to, you know, organize, quote unquote. Yeah. Um, because uh, if their theory of change, I mean, I th- all theory of changes in the end have to be centered on wh- how do we use resources of some type of constituency yeah. to put pressure on those that are making decisions. And in, the, in this case, it's legislative change basically, but it's also companies as well. They're going to change their habits too. So there's, yeah. they are decision makers as well. Um, I've found that, well, uh, observing, I've seen that most of the resources that are being organised are people that are living, geographically speaking, in inner cities, right? Um, in the sort of middle class elite group. Mm. Um, a politician would be far more wary and worried about this issue if voters in marginal seats that mm. make or break governments started to knock on their door and say, hey, yeah. We're concerned about this. And, you know, you t- correct me if I'm wrong, there are people out there that live in those suburbs. That there, I'm sure there are small groups or there are organisations and there are groups that are committed to addressing the issue of climate. Um, but they are probably smaller numbers and they're mm. not getting the support they probably need. A good example, a friend of mine's mother, actually, funnily enough, I don't know if she listens to the show or not, but you know, she joined me up to the Labor Party. Um, one of my best mates from high school, primary school, high school, she was a president of the 
Warrigal branch of the Labor Party, and she just signed me up when I was 17. Mm. Uh, she left the Labor Party, like many did, in the sort of around refugees and joined the Greens. Uh, and she lives in Pakenham. Uh, so that's your person out of that way, right? Mm. She's just left the Greens because she's, she's, feel like she's sick of the infighting that's going on within her own political party because she wants to do something about the environment. So there are people like that woman out there in those communities that want to do something, but they're not getting the support mm. from all of the cashed-up resources that exist in the big part of town, right, around here. And I wonder mm-hmm. what, what – this worries me, right? You're yeah. saying they don't want to go knock on those closed doors. Then what the fuck are they doing? Yeah, well, I mean, and, and it's those people who I think, you know, 63%, you know, alarmed or concerned, I think, I think is – that's a lot of people. And so that's people in the suburbs, that's people in country areas. And, I mean, the weirdest – one of the weirdest things about all this is that, you know, in, in terms of regional, um, you know, Australians – that they are the closest to the impacts here and yet a lot of them don't see themselves in this discussion, you know. Mm. And when I was at Arena, um, you know, we did a whole piece, comms piece around um, got dudes and women in hard hats and high-vis vests who were building solar farms in country areas, you know, like – and. Didn't talk about climate at all, just talked about, you know, jobs and economic op- opportunities. I said to – when I did the brief, I said I want the renewable energy comms piece that Barnaby Joyce would like. And we actually almost got Barnaby Joyce to the opening of Wind Farm. Like I felt like I almost had him <laughs> because ironically huge amounts of development going on in, in, in New England, in Armadale – you know, massive economic opportunities in his backyard, kind mm. of thing. So, um, you know, like, and I, and I think federal labor has done some work to kind of frame the the hard hat, high vis story here a bit in terms of the economic opportunity of of renewable energy. But there's still so much work to be done here, um, and there's so much low hanging fruit in terms of how we can frame climate through all those different, you know. All those different identities yeah. um, that are be beyond just the inner city kind of bubble. Yeah. Um, do you remember the? Um, spe- I want to talk about the sort of this in- intersectionality and and how climate how the climate movement can build coalitions with unlikely partners. Um, and I was just thinking as you were talking before about remember the lock the gate uh, campaign down in Morac, um, uh, yeah. sort of out past uh, Geelong for those outside of Victoria. Um, Alison Marchand, who is now uh, a member of parliament for Labor in, in state parliament, um, was one of the leaders of that yeah. campaign. And that was a coalition. So it was, it was to end fracking basically in, in Victoria. We have yeah. you know, the Andrews government and there's another initiative the Labor government's done, <laughs> um, put a ban on fracking. Um, but that campaign actually was – I mean I think Alison is a school teacher by trade but lives on a farm. Mm. And so she managed to, uh, with a group of others, organise – environmentalists down in that part of the world, uh, the local communities, shop owners and farmers because of the impact it would have had on the soil. So there was an economic and environmental argument being made here. This was going to ruin the livelihoods of a whole bunch of farmers. Mm. And I think it's interesting. I, I do wonder about, you know, you know, the farmers farming community normally is represented poorly by the National Party who are on the right side of politics, that this would be one group that actually would be saying, hey, we get this. You know, our, our livelihood depends mm. on 
the environment. That's because that's what we're living off. Of. We're yeah. li- literally living off the land, right? <laughs> Um, what, what what other examples do you have of that or what can you speak to in terms of examples where it's working, where we're seeing this intersectionality work as opposed to where it's not working? Yeah, I was, I was actually just uh, up in the, the Northern Rivers um, over the past week and um, there's some great work going on there with um, uh, um, a mob called the Northern Rivers Living Lab which, is, which was um, forged after the floods up there. And it's basically uh, um, um, funded by state government universities, but it's uh, really seeing taking the f- the disaster of the floods and actually seeing how that can be um, a, uh, an opportunity for people to come together and all these different people from up there because it's a very diverse community and you've got farmers and you've got very progressive people and you've got you know townies and mm. all, who are all all trying to work out ways that they can um, recover and actually build resilience because, you know, this is going to become more common all the time. And, you know, you have farmers sitting there with, um, you know, with hippies and and other people and all sorts of different people who are actually, you know, coming together to talk about what kind of community do they want as well. And, you know, you, you've got... Um, uh, ...irrigators up there, you know, it's very flood-prone... Um, marginal f- farming land and the farmers have just, um, you know, who, you know, are not um, – have no sort of background in climate activism by any means but have sort of banded, banded together to, on their own, educate themselves about improving their farming practice practices to put in place f- flood mitigation um, measures that, um, that build, build resilience, you know. Um, and they, yeah, they would never see themselves as being, you know, climate activists. They're just trying to work out a problem. Mm. Um, but I think, um, you know, there is when we when we went in there and 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 talked to the people who are, who are running that, there's a real um, spirit of everyone's welcome. And I think that's actually a really important piece in this as well, because I think often in progressive politics as is the case with all sides of politics, I guess, not everyone is welcome, mm. you know. Um, and uh, to, to be able to sit with other people with really different viewpoints um, is, is really vital to this. And we, we heard a story about, you know, or, or just we just listen, listen to the people who are running this lab and talking about, you know, um, there's going to be a need for some of that farming land to be... Um, for the land use to be changed there, you know, um, and f- to actually protect the town, you know, because the way that that farm is happening actually increases the flood risk. But I think there's a tendency with the um, with the progressive side of things to just think that that's easy and to think that, oh, well, those farmers should just be able to just mm-hmm. like, you know, um, yeah, like stop their sugarcane farm just like... And just revert it back to to nature, and we just give them compensation, and that's it, you know. And these are people who've been farming those areas for for generations, and it's not easy, you know. And it requires empathy and listening and coming together and a real deep understanding about what that means culturally, economically, socially for those people as well. Um, and you know, I, I think that um, 
if you do have that kind of empathy, it does allow you to work work together for, for common solutions a lot better. And we've seen that problem as well, I guess, that's going to come to a head or is coming to a head right now and continue to do so as um, uh, coal companies divest in, well, like the Latrobe Valley, for example. Um, the, the, we can see that Onji and those companies are, a bit, are all pulling out of the valley. Mm. Uh, the Hunter, that's sort of, and oh, I think it feels like Queensland's just one big bloody coal mine. Um, you know, these conversations are going to continue to happen mm. and either we're going to be... You know, to point it, you know, pointing the finger in the chest yeah. of those workers, or we need to come to some kind of conversation where we can work together to overcome these challenges and not be simplistic about the solutions as well. Like, if I had a dollar for every time in the noughties that I had one of the environmental groups saying it was fine to shut down timber harvesting in the state because all those timber workers would just, you know, automatically become tourism workers, or they'd start making craft furniture or whatever like mm. that's actually not true like it's actually mm. so much harder than that and and to to create these really simplistic stories where you're just disregarding the deep cultural and social dislocation that comes from those changes is really just breeds that resentment and actually you know in a lot of ways you know puts change makes change much harder yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, we're starting to stumble onto some areas of uh, solutions and um, you recently did some work with Oxfam, what I mentioned at the top of the program. Um, tell us a bit about that project and the things that you learned from that. Yeah, so that, that was um, Oxfam Australia came to Fireside with a really particular challenge um, and in some ways, I mean, we've been talking about the challenge of climate communication in this conversation. They, they had a... They were trying to deal with a subset of that, which is this whole sort of idea around, you know, climate justice. And climate justice is really about trying to ensure that the people who have had the least to do with creating this problem are not the ones that bear the disproportionate impact of what's going on. And that's, you know, um, you know, you can see that bearing out in the example would be, you know, the floods in Pakistan um, last year. You know, like Pakistan has contributed an absolute minuscule fraction of, you know, emissions to create this problem. And yet um, because it's a poor country when they had those massive floods, you know, it, it had, you know, just devastating impact that they're still feeling today and, you know, things like... <laughs> It's you know, if if you if your only asset is a cow, and that's your kind of your superannuation, your um, you know your food source, your everything, and you lose that cow, that's that's a that's that's a big deal. Mm. So you know, putting aside all the obvious kind of um, death and destruction that occurred there as well, so. Um, yeah, there's a lot of thinking going on about how you achieve climate justice. A lot of Oxfam's work is now about kind of fundraising and doing work in developing countries to um, promote that, brings in issues, uh, brings in sort of concepts like climate finance. So how do you actually provide loans to people in developing countries to build resilience? Um, there's, um, you know, there's, there's, there's post um, uh, disaster finance as well so you know 
which, which is all designed to, yeah, to ensure that um, people aren't dis- disproportionately affected. So Oxfam was going out there and talking about climate justice and just meeting a lot of confusion and, um, you know, head-scratching about, well, aren't you guys the... Why are you guys talking about climate? Why you, Aren't you guys the international development NGO? Like, we don't understand. And so they came to us and said, we need a story that actually properly frames this and properly explains why we're in the space, you know, and um, and gets people to connect in with this idea of, of climate justice as well. So, yeah, as I said, it's it's um, if we thought, you know, climate comms was hard, I mean, this is like, this is like another level. And so, yeah, so we, um, we did the, a lot of uh, focus groups to kind of really gauge people's understanding of climate and climate justice as well. And that was really instructive, you know, and I always say to people like one of the best things you can do as a communicator is really sit in focus groups because it just totally challenges all your perceptions about what people think, feel, how, what their level of knowledge is, you know, you, 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 can, you can step outside yourself and see just how much of your judgment and, and decision-making is based on just what you reckon. So, um, who, who are in the groups? So the, it was divided into four groups. So it was divided across eight by age. So I think it was under 35 and over 35. And then there was, um, there was Climate Engaged um, but not Oxfam supporters. And then there was Oxfam supporters but not Climate Engaged. So really looking to see whether Oxfam's existing kind of people mm-hmm. were, were going to be receptive to these messages and then seeing whether they could actually grab people who weren't currently Oxfam supporters but were climate engaged to bring them across into the fold as well. And so, yeah, just, it just really um, uh, highlighted a couple of key issues that apply to this broader climate communications question as well. And one is that, you know, people can say, even people who say they're climate engaged, um, especially the younger people, their understanding and knowledge of climate is a mile wide and an inch deep. So, you know, yeah. So you had people who, um, you know, were um, saw it purely as an environmental issue, which is not surprising. So if you start to talk about social, economic, um, class-based implications of climate change, people aren't even at the starting gate as well. The term climate justice totally... Nobody except for maybe one or two people even came close to kind of understanding what they what what that is. People and again, this is the thing about terminology. I don't know what it means. Yeah. So you say yeah. So um, people thought it was about the legal system, courts of law, because of the word justice there. So that totally throws people. So one of the key bits of advice we gave Doxam is when you're talking about climate justice, don't say climate justice. You know. just confuses people yeah. you know and so um yeah people people didn't didn't understand you had to really really lead people to that idea about that this isn't just uh environmental issue this isn't just an energy issue this is going to be a social issue so there's so much work to be done in that space yeah. to actually take people to that point you know um so while we're still fighting these battles about getting people to engage in the in the overall you know, task and the fight, there's all these other bits of it that we're going to have to do heaps of work to, to get to. So, 
um, yeah, the task is is massive. People really want the other thing was really, you know, which sounds a bit obvious, but was really strong. People want because people feel so overwhelmed by the enormity of it. They want really clear, discrete actions that they can take to do something. Mm. Whether there's low barriers to entry, you know, people talking about people talked about waste and recycling a lot, and that's because they can do something about that. You can put your recycling and even though recycling and climate, you know, there's connection but um, it's not the main game. People really gravitate to things like that as well. Um, so people just want to be able to do something, you know. Um, yeah, and I mean, there, there, you know, there's, always, there's obviously broader issues at the moment in Australia about cost of living and whole heaps of other pressures that people are under and the vibe in the room a lot of the time was around... You know, we've got so much to worry about at the moment, including the climate stuff, and now you're telling us about a whole other thing that we hadn't even thought of, which mm. is like climate justice and the intersectionality of climate and all that kind of stuff. People are just like they don't have the space to deal with that as well, which I think goes back to the point around, you know, making it easy for people and really tailoring really simple messages and not overwhelming them with complexity and yeah. and frameworks and you know, all these kind of things as well. Um, the great news is that, or the positives, was that people were really receptive to a story of us. So, um, and that was one of our key recommendations to Oxfam was like, if you can actually build bridges of experience and understanding between um, our experience and the experience of, you know, a farmer in Pakistan, which is not an easy thing to do, but is doable, you know, like you can, you, that we're all in this together, you know, one, one person in the focus group was talking about um, the experience with, with COVID, with vaccines, about how we sent all those um, vaccines over to Papua New Guinea and that we we're all kind of dealing with the pandemic together and use that as an example. And so if you can frame people in other countries as not as the other but you know the this the climate problem is actually something that unites us all then that has a really big um that shifts things a lot um people really like we talk a lot about heroes and villains in our game people really don't um come at that when it comes to climate and climate justice yeah because who is the villain right so i think you you can talk about you know, corporations, oil and gas, that kind of thing being villains. But I reckon it's because actually when we're talking about heroes and villains in this space, the villains are us. Like we're all the villains in mm. this as well. And nobody, it actually, nobody wants to be the antagonist in that story. No, no. So you, so, and it actually, the hero-villain framing <clears throat> takes us further away from that story of us as well. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think... Um, we really, in our advice to Oxfam, really talked a lot about the, how you convert that kind of those findings into storytelling as well. And because um, they didn't have clear example stories about how climate impacts on people in Bangladesh, Pakistan, Pacific Islands, that kind of thing as well. So getting really kind of clear storytelling, even their imagery was like not clear. So we asked for all of their climate imagery about how it impacts on people. And, you know, they, they'd show us a picture of like a woman standing waist deep in a river, 
where it was really nondescript about, you know, who she was, what she was doing, what her circumstances were, that kind of thing. So it is a hard thing to depict in imagery, but if you can find imagery that really brings home the impact to people um, and tells a really clear story about um, uh, about how, you know, the worsening yearly cyclones in Bangladesh actually impacts on people's livelihoods and their way of living and that kind of thing as well, um, then that's going to make a huge difference. And I think, you know, like, again, a lot of people in the climate movement would see focus on pictures and imagery as being a little bit reductive and, um, you know, lacking the complexity of, you know, um, the, the problem. But... I, you know, it's absolutely essential that you get that picture right. Um, another interesting insight was, which, and I could do a whole other podcast about this <laughs> whole thing, but the how poorly protest travels with people these days. Like someone needs to do a marketing campaign on protest. Like especially the young people, young people do not like protesting. Like, See, it, I find that actually quite fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Like we, we actually had the young people... Went, they had a whole list of what are the things that you would do to engage on climate justice. Mm. Young people would rather, and this is this is a generalisation, but based on what I saw, young people would rather volunteer in a developing country than go to a protest. Yeah, it's because they're Instagram bloody accounts, <laughs> or whatever <laughs> the hell they're putting pictures up on these days. Yeah. So I think maybe they had pictures of them, yeah, images in their mind of going to yeah. um, a Pacific island and getting getting good stuff on the Instagram. But um, yeah, I, I just think like what I still wonder what is the problem people have with the idea of protest? Why is it so? Why people? Why is it seen so negatively at the moment? You know. Um, when the barrier to doing that is obviously much lower than getting on a plane and going to yeah, another country. To, yeah. To Kiribati or something. Yeah. Um, sound like absolute two Gen Xs here right yeah. now. <laughs> Shitty on you know, the Zoomers <laughs> or whatever they're called. Um, well, I find that interesting because I actually, coming from the other side, I'm, over, I'm also over the protests because it's mobilisation. It's a one-trick pony. It's a one-off. Yeah. You know, because I always ask... And then what? Like you are great. You got six hundred people to a rally, or you got you know twenty thousand. Now what are you gonna do? Because everyone's gonna leave here today and do nothing else. You know, this was just a great opportunity for people to listen to their own voices and go, "Wow, I gave a great speech." You know, but really, if it's like a massive kick off, kick ass house meeting, then there has mm. to be an ask. You know, what is and what is that? What is that ask? And how does it fit within the strategy? of building power to create the change you want. And I just think protests are one tactic that just gets done in isolation and it ends up being a complete waste of time. So you've never been a, a pro protest kind of guy? It has its place, absolutely, yeah. but there's got to be an ask. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Not targeted enough. Not no. Complete, yeah. Like I th- thought about, yeah. like the, remember the, the, I mean, geez, you could do it for any, any of them really. Like the women's marches that happened yeah. um, a while back. I went to the one down in the Treasury Gardens opposite Parliament <clears throat> that sort of Wednesday, beautiful Wednesday afternoon and a bunch of um, – I ran into a whole bunch of former field organisers for the Labor Party. Yeah. And, you know, they, God bless them, turned to me and said, Stephen, now what? Like, what's he asked next? What do, we, what do they want us to do? All these great speeches, but they just sent us off in our way. But don't you think you can in- embed that ask into the 
in, into the process? Yeah, you can, but they're not yeah. doing that. That's yeah, the yeah. point. Yeah. They're just not doing it. Yeah. And so I'm kind of with the young kids. <laughs> Fuck it. Yeah. I'm going to go to Papua New Guinea, <laughs> you know, try and help yeah. some community build some schools that got impacted by some flood. I don't know, yeah. you know, right? Yeah. So I, ca- I can kind of see where they're going for. Maybe they're rocking yeah. up and going, this is a waste of time. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that um, that need for action is like stronger than it was in the 60s. Yeah. Well, also it's different now because in the 1960s and the 70s, we didn't have the internet. So the, the, where you have communal gatherings, yeah. you know, they happened in these spaces, right? Yeah. Whereas now we can gather anyway. in, so many, yeah, in so many other different ways. Yeah. That's a really good point. Um, yeah. You convinced me. <laughs> like I said, like I think they have its place, but it's not. Um, it's not the. It can sometimes just be the be all and end all. And I, when I work with organisations and we go through what our what are our tactics, multiples, not just the one that we're going to use over time. Invariably, they'll go, "Oh, let's do a protest." Okay, great. What? Yeah. How are we going to build for it? And what happens after it? I don't know. Well, okay, come on. What are we doing here? I want to get back to the story stuff because I find that interesting as well, okay? Mm-hmm. And you uh, were fortunate enough to also study under Marshall Ganson. Obviously, we, talk, we do name check Marshall a lot on the show. Yep. Um, and he's, you know, credited with coming up with the public narrative framework, story of self, story of us, story of now. And you just mentioned before about the story of mm-hmm. us. Um, <clears throat> the story of now um, talks about... Uh, combining both the head, that is the how do we get from A to B, mm. with the heart, why we must get from A to B. And you need to engage both the head and the heart in order to engage the hands. And the hands represent action, yep. speaking of action. I'm just, I should have tested you actually there, Ben, <laughs> to see if you remember. Um, I do. So I think to your thesis, the environmental movement are great with the how to get from A to B, yep. the, the strategy, the the head component, yeah. but not the heart component. Yeah. And in the story of now, we need to create urgency in order for us to act. And I find it interesting when um, – so I did. I was a teaching fellow this year for the Leadership Organising Action class and there were some environmental students in my section this year. Mm-hmm. And when we got to the public narrative and story of now, it was interesting to watch them try and they were very good at talking about why – how we must act – but not why we must act. Mm. Uh, and it was very much, you know, ah, oh, the facts and the figures, but not saying, you know, the, you know, the narrative, the, you know, the, 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 the emotive side of our brain of why we must act. Why is that, do you think, amongst the, the environmental movement, that they struggle with that? Well, I mean, I think it's, as I said before, it's like um, there is a, there's a comfort with complexity and there's, a, yeah, there's like that is a space that, I think people who are interested in, you know, this area and those kind of people who would have been going to that um, that class would have been, you know, um, exactly the kind of people who 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 love sitting in complexity and love frameworks, mm-hmm. you know, and that's why they gravitate towards the head stuff and and also the facts are bloody compelling. Like the facts are unarguable. You know, you have a you have IPCC consensus about, you know, just how disastrous to say we're in so um and then when you have the the um the heart stuff you know it's almost like a sense that 
um, again, that the heart stuff is self-evident as well because it's like it's just it's all there, like it's all around us, you know. Um, but um, but people don't see it that way. So um, you know, I think. Uh, I, I just don't think they're heart kind of people inherently. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a really big generalisation. Um, but, yeah, if you've devoted yourself to, to science especially mm-hmm. as well, like that, that you're going to be much more sort of geared towards the facts and the head stuff, yeah. you know. Um, and also I think, yeah, it's the, it's the idea as well that storytelling and marketing is like a bit of a trick, you know. Um, I heard someone on a podcast say the other day that what we need, and it's funny because it relates to the um, um, announcement, the very um, timely announcement that the Andrews government has made around banning gas in homes in Victoria. Someone on a podcast was like, we, sh- we need to run an ultra-negative campaign about, about gas in homes, like how bad it is, like mm. how bad it is, the, the fine particulates that it puts into the air that our kids breathe in, like, you know, mm. like, all, like just throw everything at it, right? Mm. And the, the amount of shit that this person copped because they, people saw that as being trickery, mm. you know, like a campaign like that because everything has to be evidence-based, you know, like peer-reviewed, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Which is fine, except again, you're fighting on a you're fighting on a battlefield that's totally different from where the main game is, yeah. and with and and you're trying to combat messages with people who are pre- prepared to throw everything at it as well. So you know, I think I don't think there's anything morally, ethically wrong with it, as long as you're you know on the right side of the truth with employing those tactics because. It's a really important task. But, I mean, to be, public narrative isn't trickery. Mark, you know, public narrative isn't marketing though, is it? Like it's but t- those people that you're describing, I think they think it is. That's bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. We had um, one of the classes, I had to model a, um, uh, like a, um, uh, the four C's. Some of the organisers out there will be nerding off what I'm talking about right now. But, you know, how to move someone from inaction to action through this framework that we teach in organising called the Four C's. Um, and I modelled it with one of the students who actually is from Tokyo. She's an environmentalist you know, campaigner. And I thought, oh, I had to create a scenario. And I was like, fuck it, I'll just... And I didn't make this shit up. This is true. This story. And I said I needed to show how to incorporate story into uh, an ask and a story mm. of now. Mm. And I, you know, we were role-playing this, you know, I was doing a phone call trying to recruit uh, this student to uh, an event in Tokyo. And, and I just sort of said to her, look, hi, no, my, my name's Stephen, call on behalf of the Tokyo Climate Action Group. Um, how are you today? Blah, blah, blah. Um, you signed a petition uh, last week in, uh, in uh, Tokyo, uh, in Shibuya or wherever, uh, about saving the, the sakura, the, the, the cherry blossom trees. Um, Why did you do that? And she said, oh, you know, it's really important to me, blah, 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 blah. And then I said, and this is actually a true story, I said, you know, my... My first memory of the cherry blossoms was when I came over to Japan to visit my sister and I happened to arrive the week that the cherry blossoms bloomed. And I remember sitting in a graveyard in, uh, in Tokyo, that's because of where a lot of the cherry blossoms are, mm-hmm. uh, which is a tradition and people put out during the day, put out their, their um, um, picnic baskets and they have a sandwich and a beer and they sit underneath all the cherry blossoms. It's a Japanese tradition. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting there going, and I was thinking I was like 21, 22, and I was going, this is amazing. But this is a beautiful, beautiful experience. Mm. And what an introduction to this lovely country. 
Um, and then I asked her, what's your first memory of the cherry blossom? And she told me this beautiful, beautiful story about what it means to her and her family. Mm. And I said, did you know that because of global warming that the cherry blossom season is moving, it used to always be sort of roughly around late March, early April. It's getting earlier and earlier and earlier and it's lasting for a shorter and shorter amount of time. Mm. And eventually there will be no cherry blossom season or the cherry blossoms will not bloom. Mm. How does that make you feel? Mm. And she said, well, that sounds devastating. Mm. You know, that's how you bring narrative. Yeah. And I just made that up on the spot. Like yeah. I didn't, you know, I'm not an expert in this sort of shit and I'm not an environmentalist, but it took me five minutes to think about a story mm. that means something to me. Yeah. And then creating this urgency of, opportunity if we don't do something about it then this is going to go how does that make you feel and she said okay right well what i want to do hey guess what we've got this meeting next week we're asking a whole bunch of people around the community they're also very fired up about this to come together and work out how do we strategize to create change blah blah blah, blah. can i count on you to be there yes yeah. i will be there fantastic yeah. you know what i mean like yeah why are we not it's not that hard exactly. ben yeah i mean it's so funny that you talk about flowers blooming because I, I i have a um a regular um, spot on ABC radio um, we talk about communications and we're just talking about some of this stuff this morning and some a talkback caller a talkback messenger messaged in talking about jasmine and how every year jasmine flowered around the time of her uni exams yes yeah and Sorry, and I don't want to get excited by that, but it's true. <laughs> it reminds a massive jasmine plant out of my window when I was yeah. at Glen College, and she associates, jas- associates yeah. jasmine with uni exams. And she's noticed that every year the jasmine is flowering earlier and earlier, and right at like I smelt it the other day. Yeah, it's now right, and that is was really unsettling for her. And mm. so, like these kind of personal stories and experiences are exactly the kind of things that we should be tapping into. Yeah, um, but. I, I just don't think we're even kind of at the starting gate of this stuff yet. Wow. But it's so. But I think you're right. It's so obvious to me, you know. Yeah, the power of personal experience and all of this as well. And you can apply that to. I'm sure there's like stories around fishing and you know like all sorts of stuff which is directly going to people's personal experience. Like yeah. that's just yeah. I do wonder this. This uh, thought struck me during uh, COVID during one of the many lockdowns that Dictator Dan forced us all through. Uh, I obviously live and work in the CBD and I was walking down Collins Street to get a coffee on my um, within, within 500 metres of my home on my designated day I could go for a walk. <laughs> uh, and the street is dead, right? It's like I am legend in the, in the middle of the city during that <laughs> second lockdown. It was, um, it was yeah. surreal. But I had this moment of clarity where I went, shit, if you'd said to me that one day – Someone, government just told us you're going to stay home. Yeah. And we all did that. I'd be, I'd say, I don't know that it's possible, but it was possible. We acted, right? And we all acted together. Now, by the end, it was starting to fall a bit apart. I know people are having little sneaky um, parties in each other's homes, and, you know, by the 30th lockdown or whatever. But, you know, certainly for a long period of time, we saw the community able to work together yeah. for a greater cause. Why could we do that for COVID, but we can't do that for. Well, I mean, I think that's the great. That's the great hope, right? So even, um, I mean, there's, there's a there's a book called The Unha- Uninhabitable Earth where the first line is, it's worse, much worse than you think. And then it just sets out just how bad this could this could all get in terms of 
you know, sea level rise and global destruction, all that kind mm. of stuff. But even the author, is, um, whose name escapes me for the second, is essentially optimistic and about the future. And because if the truth is, if we've managed to, in just a couple of centuries, radically alter the atmosphere with our technology, we have the, op- we have the means and the wherewithal to change it back. Mm. Like that's, that's just logical. So we can do it but um, we just have to have the will to do it. So for me there's hope in that and that actually is energized. When, even when I say those words, I feel I can almost feel like that, um, that stress and tension around climate like lift, you know. And so I think yes, there's a place for, you know, um, Antonio Guterres style, um, you know, messaging around, you know, global at the year of global boiling has has commenced but we have to combine it with those messages of hope otherwise you know it's just a recipe for for further kind of alienation and um and avoidance um but yeah i mean i think there was there did feel like there was a lot of hope in 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 covid around our ability to just like creating vaccines in a couple of months like amazing you know um and you could frame that as you can frame that as a negative if, if you relate it to climate and say, well, isn't it terrible that we can't apply that to climate? But we can. We just have to decide to. And I think if enough, pe- if you can mobilise enough people to feel that hope and to feel like they have actually a, um, some agency and some ability to change things, then that's the way to, to shift people. I'm glad that we ended it on a high note there, Ben. That was good. <laughs> well done. Thank you. I always want to end on hope. Always in, uh, always in on hope. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but before you do go, anything you want to plug? Uh, at Fireside, we run a digital magazine called The Story. So uh, thestory.au, which is all about the art and science of storytelling. We do have a bit of a focus on climate communication um, that we come back to a lot. And so it's really um, – we have a feeling at Fireside that – the whole discourse around storytelling is possibly sometimes used by communications agencies as kind of bullshit just to do what they've always done, just like dress it up in storytelling and we really feel that we want to be different to that and we actually have a deep um, interest in not just selling ourselves as storytellers but having deeper discussions about storytelling and so that's a place that we do that. We have really excellent writers who we commission to do great stories about not just climate but um, a whole lot of other aspects of, of story. Um, and, yeah, we're really proud of it. So check it out. It's a great publication. We'll put the link to it in the notes for today's episode. Um, I have one thing to plug as well, actually, uh, and my producer, Rebecca, will be uh, angry at me if I don't do this. Um, the ALP National Conference is uh, coming up. Uh, in a week or so, I'm actually sure when we're publishing this particular episode. So this is I'm, I'm getting called out here in uh, the land of podcasting and planning. But uh, the, the national conference is on from Wednesday the 16th of August to Saturday the 19th of August. No, I tell a lie. It's on from Thursday the 17th of August to Saturday the 19th of August. Uh, Socially Democratic is doing two shows for the Fringe. So the Fringe... Uh, ALP Fringe is sort of like a sort of a side event in which anyone can go. You can buy tickets and I'll put links to how you can purchase tickets for the Fringe uh, on the show notes as well. 
Um, there's a whole bunch of different, there's like a market stall uh, and there's a whole bunch of different workshops and uh, sessions run by different groups within the party and outside the party and the broader movement. Uh, Socially Democratic is doing two podcasts for the Fringe, uh, one on the Thursday afternoon at 3.30, which is uh, on unionism and it's with uh, Michelle O'Neill from the ACTU, Michael Kane from the TWU and Melissa Donnelly from the CPSU, no relation. Uh, And on the Friday, Social Democratic is doing another show also at 3.30 and it's on modern campaigning and we're being joined by... Uh, Kate Flanders, who's the Queensland Branch Secretary of the ALP. Uh, Eloise Young, who used to be the Digital Director for uh, Premier Dan Andrews. Uh, And uh, Nadia Montague, who is the National uh, Training Director for the ALP National Secretariat. So those three uh, very experienced campaigners will be talking about campaigns. Uh, Last thing to plug uh, is on the Saturday at 10am, I'm leading a workshop on it's almost like an orientation to community organising, but we're using a test case, uh, which was a campaign that Dunn Street ran uh, over two years in which uh, we organised a group of uh, um, community members within the Hawthorne Football Club that wanted to knock off uh, Jeff Kennett and their, uh, and their leadership to turn their club into a far more open and democratic club. And we won. Anyway, so the, I'm going to... there's be, a story on it, about it on the story if you want to check it out. That is true. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and so we, run, we, run, uh, we ran this campaign and we're successful. So I'm going to use that as a test case to show, the, the, I guess, the six practices of community organising as taught by Marshall Gantz at the Harvard Kennedy School. So that's at 10 a.m. on the Saturday the 19th. Those dates and everything will be up on our... Um, uh, on our uh, what do you call it on the no- show notes but to go to get tickets to the fringe if you are in brisbane for the alp national Con- national conference uh the links will be uh in our show notes for today okay enough from me uh ben hart thank you so much for coming on the show today it's been fantastic i really enjoyed this conversation yeah i loved it yeah and we wish you the best of luck with um both our fireside and also the story yeah thanks so much Thanks for listening to Socially Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And to get all the latest on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday. Socially Democratic was brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn lawyers have spent more than a century paving the hard path to justice for everyday Australians. They've helped over 500,000 Australians turn their situation around and they know how the system works. Their experience and skills means you'll get the best results possible. Find out more on their website, morrisblackburn.com.au. Morris Blackburn, experience you can count on. Social Democratic was brought to you by SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust, lists that are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive donations, events that will energise the community online and offline, and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. To find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign.